This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. As the pace of change continues to accelerate, we're both in a state of extraordinary challenges and opportunities. Today, I talk with Rita McGrath, a leading expert on innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. She will share her insights on what inflection points are and how to identify, anticipate, and harness the power of inflection points. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Professor McGrath. Pleasure to be here. We're currently in highly uncertain circumstances, and no one seems to know what to expect. What is an inflection point, and why is it important? Well, I define an inflection point as something that creates a 10x shift in the environment that you believe that you're in. So 10x faster, 10x more difficult. Uh, it upends your expectations, um, 10x cheaper. In other words, it, it changes the assumptions that you've been making about what's going to drive what uh, in your business. What about the fact that everything around us is happening in warp speed? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that people really need to be spending time to reflect on what's going on around them. You know, when I talk to executives who've been taken by surprise by something in the environment, it's worth that there weren't warning signals or that there weren't sort of indications that something like this could be happening. But they're just too busy. You know, their heads down, focused, they're answering emails, they're going from meeting to meeting. And it's very difficult for them to sort of take that time to reflect, to, to, to get that perspective and see what are the larger patterns telling us. What do you think it will take to stay ahead of the unexpected these days, right? Because it's so much faster. Well, it is. And that's where I'm a big believer in placing your options. So an option is a small investment you're making today that buys you the right to make a decision in the future when things are more clear. And what's really interesting to me is as human beings, we do this quite naturally. You know, we send our children to college, we read a book, we go to a course, we invest in a degree. And none of these things give us a definite ROI, but we know that we're doing them because they're helping us prepare for an uncertain future. And so I think the big dilemma is that in business, we often don't do that because we're putting unrealistic expectations on these things. You know, they've got to have a return on investment. They've got to deliver certain results in a certain amount of time. And preparing for the future really can't be dealt with that way. But what about as an entrepreneur or from a personal standpoint, how do you think that entrepreneurs can prepare uh, for inflection points and take advantage of new opportunities and avoid risk? Well, I think entrepreneurs are very good networkers. And so what you want is incredibly rich flows of information about what's going on. The best ones that I've seen are really good at picking up these signals. They're also really good at redefining problems. So one of the issues that I think has been absolutely fascinating is to watch how some of the private sector space companies, for example, have been solving problems in a completely different way than NASA. Has. So, you know, the biggest cost in the state program is you lose your rocket every time you shoot one up in the sky because you don't recover them. Well, what if you could recover them? Um, and sort of looking at the problem in a really different way and saying, hey, let's redefine what that means and coming up with a novel solution. 
We also have the rise of solopreneurs, right, where more people are now um, defining what they're doing and and trying to figure out how to move forward. Do you have any thoughts about how they may want to think about how they navigate? Well, you know, increasingly we're in a world where it's access to assets rather than ownership of assets that's making a big difference. Um, and I think the, 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 the solo entrepreneur, a couple of things that I think are important. Um, one is you don't want to be so vulnerable in terms of scarcity of resources that you're desperate. You know, you never want to put yourself at a, at a disadvantage that way. So before you take that route, you know, you should give yourself a good hard think about if if I were to have to not be paid for a two-month stretch, you know, is that going to cause me enormous anxiety and, you know, force me down a different path? So that that's, I think, one consideration. Uh, the second consideration is, you know, how how much have I validated that the market's really going to be there for what I'm trying to do? And then the third thing is to have some contingency plans in the back of your mind. You know, if that big contract doesn't come through or we do go into a recession and perhaps discretionary spending goes away, is my strategy still robust under that eventuality? But with the increasing pace of change and disruption, do you think that inflection points are becoming more frequent? I would encourage people to think about little eye inflection points and big eye inflection points. So little eye inflection points might be something like, um, you know, the current setback in venture capital funding and, you know, the, the rise of inflation. And those things are, you know, they're, they're inflection points, yes, but they're not fundamentally changing the rules of the game. Whereas if I helicopter up to the whole digital revolution, which is fundamentally changing the rules of the game, that's a big inflection point, right? So I think the little ones are becoming more frequent, and I think it's because of two factors. Uh, One is digitization. So as you have business models that don't involve physical assets, things can just move more quickly. And the second is the rise of services and experiences, and the same dynamic, right? It's a service. It's 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 easy to easy to copy, so you have competition more quickly, and your outstanding advantage lasts for a lower period of time. So I do think the pace of change is quite quite accelerating. Do you think it's hard for most people to spot inflection points? Yes, yes, um, and there's a reason for that, right? So any business any person's life, right, is surrounded by constraints that were in place at the time they were born, at the time the business was born. And so you develop a recipe for success as a person or as a business that gets wrapped into those constraints. So, you know, what what are your KPIs, right? Well, that comes from the, the things that go performance in the past. That files into how you're rewarded, that files into how you get regulated, that files into how success is evaluated by your key stakeholders. And so there's all this reality around something that used to be. And it takes a long, long time for us to realize that those constraints have changed. So let me give a historical example. Before there was electricity, all manufacturing plants basically had to be built with a single power source in mind. So a river or a steam engine or a windmill. And the whole plant was built chained along that thing. You never turned it off. The power source was constant, and it was all built linearly to to draw on that power source. Once you had the introduction of electricity, now each machine in the plant could be powered separately. And that would eventually teach us that there were awesome things you could do with that, right? You could turn the machine on and off. You could locate the 
heavy, dirty, gritty parts so far away from the parts that were, you know, clean and office-like, and, 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 and. But it took 16 years for the conversion of most of the former manufacturing plants to the current model. Uh, now, why is that? It's because you have to give up a lot of stuff if you're going to convert to this new model. You have to retire your old equipment. You have to write it off. You have to invest in new equipment. There's a big transition, right? And so many people, when they look at something like that, they say, yeah, it might be really great down the road, but I really don't want to undergo the pain of transforming my whole operation that way. So there's kind of two factors at play here. One is just not seeing the inflection point because you're so immersed in the reality of what was. But the second is kind of seeing it dimly, but it's not urgent. It's not on your doorstep right now. And I don't want to make the necessary investments to make the shift yet. You describe inflection points as being able to see around the corners. Is that accurate? You want to be able to see around the corners to see one approaching. And, you know, how do you see it, right? How do you decide what to do about it? And then how do you bring the organization with you? When you say seeing around the corners, you have to actually notice that the corner is there first. Well, right, right. I do appreciate how you say opportunities for innovation are so often found at the edge of a company's existing capabilities. And therefore, inflection points start at the edge. So those are the corners. And what does that typically look like then? Or how do people identify what that edge is? Well, the are really where your organization touches your external environment, you know, your ecosystem partners, your customers, your, your, you know, your suppliers. Um, so it's, it's who is there, you know, when your entity kind of connects with the environment that it's in. And what you find is in a lot of organizations, the people making big strategic decisions are not very well plugged in to what's happening you know, as, as many people like to say, at the cold face, right, at, at, at where the thing is actually unfolding. Um, and when you think about it, that's where the small announcements of something that could be a big change tend to be found. You know, it's the it's the, the customer service rep who answers the phone. Says, Gee, nobody ever asked me about that before. It's the guy loading stock onto a truck and noticing for the very first time that a competitor from Korea's stuff is on the same truck. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And those sorts of insights very often get locked away uh, in people's brains. And it's not that people don't want to communicate, but very often the people who have the critical information are either not hierarchically in a position to have much influence, or they just don't feel empowered to speak up, or there's no mechanism for them to tell people who might really need to know what's going on. So that's the dilemma uh, of the edges. I mean, I have yet to go into any a manufacturing plant or service operation or anything where the people actually delivering the service or performing the function didn't have really powerful ideas about how it could be made better. Um, and yet, you know, they're not, they're not often able to communicate that to the powers that be. That's such a great point because a lot of times I get surveys and even then sometimes the questions on the surveys are not relevant or for the, my experience, let's say. And sometimes you ha- it sounds like you have to get into the depth of people who are seeing and experiencing it and understanding how it's being delivered and how it's being experienced. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll share a little story with you about this kind of thing. So I was, one of my clients makes um, food ingredients. Um, and and I talked them into this idea about let's go to the edges and see what's going on. So we agreed to do a plant tour with one of their key uh, customers. 
and uh, so we're going along. We're just basically following a, a manufacturing process through the plants, and we get to this super exciting moment, which is uh, my client stuff is getting dumped into this big vat of about enough sausage meat or bologna or whatever they were making, um, and somebody in the group just happened to ask. They said, "Hey, what's the typical batch size that you use of our stuff?" And the answer was, well, 30 pounds is our typical, that would be the most typical size. Well, this stuff had been shipped and stored and kept from time immemorial in 50-pound drums. And nobody thought about it. Nobody was complaining. Nobody thought it was an issue. But the light bulb went off, and we said, hang on, you know, to, to, to make this, you know, food stuff, the person doing it has to go find the drum, scoop out 30 pounds. There's 20 pounds now left in there, so that's got to be sealed up and preserved. We have to remember that it's there the next time we have to make a batch, and then the next thing only gets 10 pounds taken out of it, so there's now 40 pounds sitting there. In other words, there was a mismatch between the way the product was being delivered and how it was being used. Now, when I tell it like that, it seems blindingly obvious, but we didn't. nobody ever realized it was a problem, and the client didn't even know to complain. So we went back, and we set the food packaging guys to work and we said, hey, could you make us a more flexible packaging that maybe could let them more conveniently allocate the stuff? So they patented, they invented and patented food-safe packaging for this kind of material uh, and went back to the market with, with an offer that said, hey, we can ship you this stuff in either 10-pound or 20-pound bags. So, you know, like those plastic bags where you tear the top off in the grocery store. Um, well, that thing changed the entire market for this particular kind of ingredient because the customers realized how much more convenient it was to have it packaged that way. Because nothing changed about the product, nothing changed about, you know, the, the stuff that they were making. But this, erasing this one step in the customer's process radically changed their business. Well, there's always uh, the question of do you design a product first or... Do you get the feedback first, right? Right, right. And it sounds like it's somewhere in the middle, really. Well, I think you, it's very hard to get feedback without having something to show the customer, right? So whether it's a prototype or a prototype or a wireframe or something that they can respond to, because people aren't very good at responding in their heads to questions, especially that's something they've never seen before. You have said the the place you feel least comfortable is the place where you're going to have the biggest returns. Is mm-hmm. this a comfort zone, or how would you describe this? Well, if you think about any business in a competitive market, you know, unless you have a patent or a trade secret or something that's an entry barrier, once you've demonstrated the business exists and it can be successful, by definition, you're going to attract competition. And that will depress your returns, as I said, unless you're in a very protected business with a lot of moats in it. So, uh, again, so that's the business you know well and understand. By definition, it's the businesses you don't know well and nobody understands that have the potential for the greatest returns before competition catches up with you. So the, the place where you feel most comfortable is the place that's least likely, least likely to give you breakaway growth. In your experience, what are some of the common mistakes that entrepreneurs or business make when dealing with inflection points? Well, there's common mistakes entrepreneurs make, like, in general. (laughs) And then there's specific ones having to do with inflection points. So I think the the most common mistakes are you you fall in love with your product. You forget to really test it with the market. You don't really validate the product market fit. You spend too much money way too early on something that is kind of half-baked. Um, you go for growth. I mean, this is a mistake that's everywhere right, right now in that current moment in history. But, you know, there's all this breakneck growth stuff going on when people haven't even validated a business model. 
those are some generic mistakes. Um, with respect to inflection points, it's denial, you know, refusing to believe that a situation that might have been true at one point no longer is. It's uh, not being willing to change, so not, not pivoting when that would be required. It's, you know, having the refusal, right, of, of responding when somebody says, hey, this is likely to be happening, you know, and just, just not, not taking it in. What's the best way to avoid them, avoid making these mistakes? Oh, well, I think the first really starts with mindset, right? Um, realize that a lot of what you're thinking is probably wrong. You just don't know, you know, out of 100%, 70 is probably wrong. You just don't know which 70%. Um, and so getting as much feedback as you can, having a trusted, almost personal board of advisors who can tell you the truth, getting information from uh, as diverse a set of resources as you can, so diverse people, diverse points of view, diverse backgrounds, um, and then really trying to be explicit about the assumptions that you're making and testing them. I'm a big believer in that, which is write them down, you know, check them out, um, and, and make sure they're not sort of fundamentally ridiculous, right? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I think that that's, sometimes you look at a product and you just go, what were they thinking? This couldn't work, right? Right, yeah, we see a lot of that. What skills or qualities do you think are the most important for individuals to successfully navigate inflection points? Well, I think having a lot of curiosity is important. Um, I think being able to calm yourself down in the face of something that look, may look threatening. You know, Ed Catmull, who is very, is very famous for having very successfully produced hit after hit after hit at um, Pixar, always used to say that one of his cardinal rules for these working teams that would put together the concepts for these movies is he said, you know, no matter your position in the hierarchy, this is the director's project, and the director has the last word. And so in a normal hierarchy, right, if you're, say, the product manager, you go into these meetings, and a lot of what you are worried about is that you're going to be overridden or argued with. You have to defend your product or your process, um, and you have to do that in a very uh, accelerated way. Whereas if you know going in that it's your call, you know, and they're there to help you, that's a completely different conversation than if you, you know, if you go in being fearful. So creating the space, the psychologically safe space where you can take in uncomfortable information, I think is really key. Would you say that you're a solo entrepreneur as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so can you tell us about a time in your career when you experienced an inflection point and how you navigated it and how you do it differently next time around? Well, don't forget, inflection points can be really good. I mean, we always couch them as negative, but they can be really positive experiences. So I'll share with you a negative, and then I'll share with you a positive. So um, in my doctoral program, um, there was a whole departmental kerfuffle, and um, I didn't get into a certain departmental thing that I was really hoping I would get into, and um, sort of... Had been building, you know, it was one of those things where you'd been building up and building up and building up, and then the decision turned out to be no. And so I, uh, I kind of sulked about it for a while, and then I said, hang on, you know, just not getting into that thing. I'm still in a PhD program. I can still get a great degree. I've got great sponsorship, you know, so I didn't happen to get accepted by that group. So, you know, let's just go through that. And I think sometimes people over index on the negative of a the situation, they don't realize. But that particular outcome is only one expression of a number of outcomes that could be quite positive. 
And so that that was kind of the negative. So I think one of the coping strategies there is to ask yourself what you really want. Um, and this I find with corporate people a lot. Like, you'll say, what do you really want? And they'll say, well, I want to be a level three, B2, you know, grade six uh, leader, you know, in so they define what they want in terms of the hierarchy. But if you really push them, eventually you get to a conversation where they say things like, I want to be able to hire creative people and have them do their best work. I want to be able to you know, have an impact in the way children are educated. I really want to be uh, responsible for bringing 10 of the brightest young people on the planet into, into this organization. And I'm like, well, okay, there's probably 50 ways you could accomplish those things. So don't get yourself so hooked up on a particular outcome that, that, um, that uh, you're, you're thinking about. Next thing is, um, so I'll tell you a positive one, which was um, 2013, and I published my first soul-authored book, and it turned out to be the right message at the right time. The book really took off, and that was a really positive career inflection point for me, um, because before that, I'd always co-authored, and I haven't quite realized that it's a very different animal when you actually say, no, this is my work, and this is what I stand for, and uh, it made a big difference. That's such a great point that a lot of people believe that if I had more money or if I had a higher position, that then I can make a difference or do things differently. It's it's not that they can't, right? It's like they think that somehow that's going to allow them to do more when it may be a matter of how they look at the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing I think that's really important is um, it, was, it was made vivid to me by a story John Bogle tells in his book. And uh, as Bogle was telling it, he went to a party with the author of Catch-22, Joseph Keller. And this particular party happened to be with very wealthy people at the Hampton someplace. And uh, at the party, somebody asked Keller, you know, how he felt that the guy that was giving this party would make, like, in a week, what all the sales of this fabulously successful book, Catch-22, had made in its entire uh, publishing history. And Keller responded, he said, oh, I don't care, um, because I have something that guy will never have. And the, the, the questioner was astounded and said, well, what do you mean? And Keller said, I have enough. So it's it's more the coming from the perspective of I have enough, I just need to decide what to do with it, rather than I need more in order to be able to do something with it. Yeah, and there's actually some fascinating research on this, which shows up to a certain level of money, right? It does actually provide you with more things, right? So you get a nicer car, you get a nicer house, you can afford to send your children to a better school, blah, blah. So up to a certain threshold, um, it, 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 it sort of increases your sense of well-being. Then you have this period where you're kind of plateauing. So you buy three houses and you get two yachts and you get, you know, a fridge or whatever it is. And then once you get beyond that, all you care about is the numbers. Uh, and this is actually a psychological thing that happens to people who have like a lot, a lot of money. And then you're never happy because your your number can never be big enough, right? There's always going to be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or somebody who's got more than you do, right? And so it becomes a really horrible you know, seemingly these people have everything in life they could ever want, and in, in ter- inside they're miserable. So do you think that having too much actually push you to challenge whether it is enough? Is that what happens? Well, or- I think it's, the money no longer makes a material difference to your well-being. And so if you've got everything on the planet you could possibly ever want in the material things, if you don't have a way of thinking about, you know, where do I want to make a positive difference, how am I going to find value and meaning and purpose? If, if, if it's all just about the money, 
um, then there's no amount that will ever make you happy because it, there's always the next day. There's always more to be gotten, um, and and that's kind of a d- difficult place to be. The reason I asked this is because it's interesting how there there are people or places that spend little money and they can accomplish as much as places or people who spend a lot of money, right? They can come to the same result. You know, it's never been compared that you could still achieve the same, Mm -hmm. but perhaps it's done differently. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the, again, one of these mindset things that people get into is that they have to stay, you know, they have to do it big. It has to be unique. It has to be original. So I have a good friend, Ben Fluber, who just wrote a book called How Big Things Get Done. And he makes the observation that, you know, most big projects, most big ambitious projects fail. I mean, like 99.9%, I mean, a lot. And But the few that succeed do things very differently. And so the first thing that they do is they take a lot more time to think through what it is they're doing. So he uses the example of the architect, Frank Gehry, who might take two years to just pressure test and go through and think about drawings think about the planes, build the models. All of that is not very extensive, right? And then when he wants to build, it goes very quickly, and he brings stuff in on time and on budget. And the second thing he advocates for is modularity. So rather than building these monuments to uniqueness and thinking my project is different and new and unique and nobody else could do anything like this, rather than that way of thinking, you build it in the smallest possible increments that you can, adding value each time. So an example that he uses is the battery factory that Tesla built out in Nevada. And the normal way you build these factories is you you know you budget the thing for five years, you build this massive factory, and maybe after six years you're starting to earn a little revenue. Well, what Musk did is really different. He said, let's build it in a modular way. So what's the smallest unit of production we can build in the fastest amount of time that will get us to some kind of commercializable result? And then then let's build it so that they can sort of Lego brick together. Um, so I get one unit, and then I double the capacity to the second unit, and then I add a couple more units, and that unit quadruples the capacity. But, and so eventually you do end up with a massive battery factory, but it's built in modular terms. So each time you do it, you're learning. It sounds, and that's thing. So it sounds like perhaps people should look at constraints as a positive tool to help them better define what it is that they need to be focusing on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, good designers will tell you they love constraints. You know, if you if you just have a complete blank sheet of paper without any constraints, it's, it's a very tough challenge to design for. These are great reminders. Thank you for sharing your expertise and insights on Inflection Points, Professor McGrath. And thank you oh, for joining me on Spark. A pleasure to be with you.